0: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Poetry Says. My name is Alice. Thank you so much for downloading, for listening in. Today I wanna talk about the idea of where poems come from. Now, as soon as I say that, you've probably got a whole bunch of ideas already floating up in your mind. You're thinking, well, poems come from the poet themselves. They come from memory, they're representing certain experiences that the poet has had or maybe they come from sources like found text or speech. Maybe they come from techniques like chance operations like you use a word dice or you do a random opening of the dictionary. But my guess is you're probably thinking in terms of volition, that the poet has agency in terms of making their work. But I've come across an idea quite recently through looking at the work of the poet Jack Spicer, who was a Californian poet active in the 50s and 60s, that poems actually come from outside the poet. This is his contention anyway, and So what I'm going to do today is explain that idea in some detail and then I'm going to look at a poem of his which I think pretty much either contradicts or challenges his own idea. So Spicer was a linguist at UC Berkeley and I came across this idea of his in reading a book called The House That Jack Built which is a collection of four lectures that he did in Vancouver over 50 years ago now, in June 1965. These lectures took place basically in the months before Jack Spicer died. He was pretty much an alcoholic, it sounds like, and he died from alcohol poisoning in the same year that the lectures were given. So he wasn't the happiest of people, and you can hear that. I'm going to read a little bit of the lecture just to give you an idea of his contention that poems come from outside the poet, and you'll start to hear this kind of combative personality. It's the kind of poetry event that I wish I could attend today. Just in someone's house, everyone's all piled in, and there's a real um, back and forth between Spicer and the audience. There's not this kind of reverent sense of the poet standing up there having all the answers. The audience is jumping in and challenging him on this contention all the time and asking him questions. So to get a little bit closer to this idea of poems coming from a place outside the poet, I'll read some sections from his first lecture. And in this part, he talks about three stages to discovering this outside as a beginning poet. So he says, I think the first kind of hint that one has as a poet is after you've written poems for a while and struggled with them and everything else, A poem comes through in just about one eighth of the time that a poem normally does. That's the first experience. And you say, oh, well, gee, it's going to be much easier if I can just have this happen very often. So then you write 17 or 18 different things, which are just what you're thinking about at that particular moment and are lousy. It isn't simply the matter of being able to get a fast take. It's something else. But the fast take is a good sign that you're hooked up with some source of power, some source of energy. Then the next thing you suddenly figure out, well, gee, when I've been wanting to say something, say I'm in love and I wanna sleep with this person and you know, the normal thing is with a fast take, you write all these things down with an idea of, essentially, a way of selling a used car. And this doesn't work. So one day, after you've had this first experience, which just was something you couldn't imagine, and the poems haven't come this clean this fast, and they don't usually, in dictated poetry anyway. Again, suddenly there comes a poem that you just hate and would like to get rid of that says exactly the opposite of what you mean. But what you want to say, the business of the wanting coming from outside, like it wants $5 being $10, that kind of want, is the real thing. The thing that you didn't want to say in terms of your own ego, in terms of your image, in terms of your life, in terms of everything. So my understanding of what he's said so far is that he sees a poet having these different experiences of a poem just coming to them. And some of them are real, genuine poems coming from the outside. And others, the poet just fools themselves because they think, oh yeah, I'm just writing down exactly what I'm thinking. I'm not getting in the way here. But those are not genuine Outside experiences that's just that's just your stream of consciousness operating. I suppose is what he means And so I think what he's saying here is the first stage is getting to understand the difference between those two types of writing So he goes on I think the second step for a poet who's going on to the poetry of dictation is when he finds out that these poems say just exactly the opposite of what he wants himself Like if you want to say something about your beloved's eyebrows and the poem says the eyes should fall out and you don't really want the eyes to fall out or have even any vague connection or you're trying to write a poem on Vietnam and you write a poem about skating in Vermont. These things again begin to show you just exactly where the road of dictation leads. So this is where he starts to introduce the idea of the poet being dictated to. And it seems this was a really central idea for Spicer, this kind of practice of becoming almost like a medium or a conduit for a poem coming through you and just getting out of the way as much as you possibly can. And this is a pretty challenging idea, I think. It means that you as the poet can't really take credit or responsibility for your poems. Um, It means that you don't get uh, as much of an ego boost if somebody likes your poem, and similarly, you might not get as hurt if somebody hates it, because it's not really yours. It's a pretty challenging idea. So he goes on to talk about the third stage, saying, the third stage, I think, comes when you get some idea that there is a difference between you and the outside of you, which is writing poetry where you feel less proud of the poem that you've written and know damn well it belongs to somebody else. But then you start seeing whether you can clear your mind away from the things which are you, the things that you want and everything else. Sometimes it's a 12 hour struggle to get a 10 line poem, not changing a single word of it as you're writing, but just as it goes along, trying to distinguish between you and the poem, the absolute distinction between the outside and the inside. So I don't know about you, but I have never sat down and spent um, 12 hours waiting for lines to come through me to make a 10 line poem. And I wouldn't have the first clue as to how to distinguish between whether a line was coming from my subconscious or my memory, or if it was coming from some kind of outside source. And I'm sure to many of you, this is sounding Extremely California woo right now. And I guess it is, right? Like, this is California in the 1960s. This is uh, a conversation that's happening around that time. But I do know that I've had conversations with poets, I think even on this podcast, where they've talked about poems that just came so quickly, so easily, almost of a piece, and they barely had to change anything. And these are experiences that they remember as really joyous but also really rare and that's the other problem with this idea of a poem being dictated to you. What happens the rest of the time? Are we meant to just sit back and go okay I'm just going to wait for my next dictation session? I mean that's completely counter to this sort of idea that's floating around now of the 10,000 hours and becoming an expert and you know, hundred poems, hundred days—all these kind of daily practices that we're meant to have. I don't know; it's um, it's pretty hard to knit together. And the audience, even at the time, are not convinced. They keep challenging Spicer and saying things like, "What about a poet who uses a form like a sonnet? Are you saying that these outside forces, or what Spicer starts to term Martians, are somehow capable of using?" sonnet form or what about rhyme? Are they just magically able to get the poet to pick exactly the right word? And he doesn't have fantastic answers. At one point he says, the Martian says, look, I have to get into this goddamn box, which is 14 lines tall, and I have to rhyme here, there, the other place. I have to screw my body up this way and that way and so forth. One of the nice things about it, the Martian says, is that the poet, on account of the fact that he's forced by these rhymes, won't be able to put too much of what he wants to put in himself. So that's probably the most convincing argument that he puts forward in favour of a poem being dictated, even when you're using things like rhyme or a certain form. In a way, the form takes a lot of your decision-making away. takes a lot of the volition out of it. But I don't know, there's just so much... um, Anytime I've ever tried to use form, my conscious mind is working so hard. I suppose if you were so familiar with a form like a sonnet or so comfortable using rhyme, perhaps because you've done your 10,000 hours of practice, maybe you could just sit down and let a poem flow through you and it would just come out beautifully, matching exactly what that form wanted. That's not an experience I'm familiar with, but I would like to know if anyone else is. So I've got here the collected poetry of Jack Spicer, uh, a book called My Vocabulary Did This To Me, which is an interesting title in light of the dictation argument that he puts forward. And um, I wanna read to you this very short poem from a section called 10 poems for Downbeat, Downbeat being a magazine. And the fifth poem in this collection is, only one with any kind of epigraph all the rest of them are just numbered they don't even have titles and this one is just um got the words for hunts at the top h-u-n-t-z so already i'm starting to have doubts in my mind you know these poems are written for a magazine and this particular poem is written for presumably a person called hunts and as you'll see the poem itself actually addresses the question of dictation and raises a question about whether it's happening or not in this instance. So it goes like this. I can't stand to see them shimmering in the impossible music of the star-spangled banner. No one accepts this system better than poets. Their hurts healed for a few dollars. Hunt, the right animals. I can't. The poetry of the absurd comes through San Francisco television directly connected with moon rockets. If this is dictation, it is driving me wild. So it's already pretty interesting that the second last line begins, if this is dictation. He's not sure if it's dictation or not. He's got that same uncertainty that I think anyone would feel. If this is dictation, it is driving me wild. That's an interesting uh, choice, if we can call it that, of words there at the end. Driving me wild, that could be a positive or a negative thing. Could be driving you wild with ecstasy or it could be making you very um, angry, I suppose. The most interesting line for me, though, is the first one. I can't stand to see them shimmering in the impossible music of the Star Spangled Banner. It's not clear who them is. Although the next line goes on, no one accepts this system better than poets. So I wonder if the poets are the ones shimmering in the impossible music of the Star Spangled Banner. Are these poets who are giving themselves into this this system, are they buying into it? Are they somehow being patriotic? And is that something that he can't stand to see? I mean, these are not these are questions that they just don't ring very true when you start to think about, if you think about this poem as something that Jack Spicer didn't write, but that's something Jack Spicer allowed to come through him as some kind of medium. These questions stop being relevant. It doesn't really matter. So it's challenging as a reader as well as, as a poet to think about this idea of poetry coming from outside. I also love how the line no one accepts this system better than poets goes on to say their hurts healed for a few dollars. Even though it might have been a lot easier economically to be a poet in the 1960s it's just a reminder that the um, economic needs of, a, of poets were still pretty meagre. So yeah I, I looked all through this collection for something that I thought would be representative of Spicer and I wanted to choose something late in his, in his work so that it would be in line with this idea of dictation that he talks about you know right before he dies and this poem um, is from a collection published in 1965 as well so we have to assume that he's pretty comfortable by this stage with the idea of dictation but there's still that doubt in there if this is dictation it is driving me wild so yeah, as, as I'm reading these lectures, I increasingly get the sense that Spicer is one of those people who took a position and defended it more for the joy of defending the position than he really believed in it. I could be completely wrong about that, but I don't know, there's a, there's a playfulness in the way that he talks to the people who come to these lectures, and there's a, a sense of fun as well. He's not taking it deadly, deadly seriously. So I don't know if that's an idea that really connects with you or if it's one that just makes you kind of irritated. For me, it probably does both. I've been turning it over in my mind for about the last week or so as I've been going back to drafts and kind of watching myself from the outside as I'm trying to, you know, add new lines or revise and thinking, well, what is this process of revision if, um, I'm meant to be somehow channeling some kind of outside source. You know, I use the term meant to very loosely there. But yeah, it makes me kind of think about, well, what is the place of something like a poetry workshop where everyone looks at each other's drafts and gives suggestions? And what about the poets that we know worked through tens or sometimes even hundreds of drafts to get a poem just right? You know, you've got them on one end of the scale and then you've got your your Ginsbergs and your other kind of California school poets advocating first thought, best thought, you know, try not to revise too much, if at all. I guess at the end of the day, it's a question of trusting your own process, whatever that is. Probably the quickest way to kill any kind of creative instinct is to worry too much about what other creators are doing So yeah, don't take Jack Spicer too seriously, but um, I thought this was an idea definitely worth pursuing just because I do hear again and again, poets talk about this experience. Oh, this poem just came to me. It was like I wasn't even writing it. I was just taking dictation. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I'd love to know if this is something that resonates with you or if seems totally off the wall so you can get in touch with me on twitter at poetry says you can also find me on facebook and you can get in touch via the website as well at poetrysays.com. thanks so much for listening and being part of the podcast and i'll catch you next time